so you have a lot of mental stability you know if, if yeah. some people write you these messages and yeah. you know but it won't stop you yeah i mean like the way i see it is that like i mean if if you're writing an article about something that's a very contentious topic and you're not getting death threats from both sides um, <laughs> you're probably writing an unbalanced article Hello and welcome to the New Space Vision podcast sponsored by Liveio, where we discuss new space technology, finance and innovation with executives, founders and more exciting people from the startup and new space ecosystem. I'm Sam Shivara. And I'm Daniel Seidel. And together we are the founders of the Earth Observation Company Liveio and New Space Vision. Today we're happy to be joined uh, by a journalist, open source intelligence researcher and a Liveio geospatial developer, Michael Cruikshank. Hi, Michael. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, we're very happy to have you on the podcast because exactly you are now with Life You since a year? Yeah, year and a half, I believe. Something actually. like that. And both uh, when Danny and I uh, saw your CV coming in, we thought, well, that's an interesting profile because you're not the typical geospatial developer. Before starting here at Life You, you've been a journalist, right? Could you tell us a little bit about your background, what you've been doing before coming here to Life You? Yeah, so I. Uh, trained as a journalist, I had a bachelor in journalism, etc. Then I, I moved to Berlin about a decade ago, and I was initially working effectively uh, in tech journalism, and then that was not really what I wanted to do. Um, so I started basically tweeting a lot about uh, international conflicts and this kind of thing, and eventually uh, became a freelance conflict journalist. And so within that, I was writing stories for a number of different publications, um, basically around the theme of, of conflicts and wars and specifically focusing on uh, areas within the former Soviet Union and parts of the Middle East as well. Yeah. So, and then from there, I suppose, I got into a field called uh, open source intelligence, which we'll talk about more, I suppose, later in the podcast. And open source intelligence uses a lot of satellite data. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got into working with geospatial data and ended up at Live Yeah. Very cool. And exactly, we're going to speak about this extensively. Yeah. Yeah. And you also have a lot of uh, Twitter followers, right? So. Uh, that's right. Um, well, I'm okay. Not, this sounds like a humble brag, I suppose. <laughs> but no. Um, I, so I was running a, a news account called Conflict News or at Conflicts for a long time uh, with a group of other people. And together we amassed a very large following on that. Not so active these days, however, simply because I'm now working full time at Liveio and don't have as much time to spend on this. And also simply that um, there's just so much going on that it was getting impossible for one or two people to really accurately cover this. And it just became sort of attention bias in the sense of like you would just report on the things that are most uh important in the news or most, most talked about in the news. And that's not really what I wanted to do when I created the account. It was actually the opposite. So I felt like unless I could really have a lot more time, I couldn't, put, uh, I couldn't really do that account the uh, justice it deserved. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so today in this podcast, uh, we will talk a lot about open source intelligence, OSINT. Um, And this is also what, what uh, your account is uh, uh, like basically focusing on, yes, right? So um, so we will come back to this later. Uh, so we want to first talk about a bit more like your personal story and how you came to life. You and we we also remember um, that you you work with geospatial data before life. You but you didn't have a traditional uh, geospatial background. As Sven said, it was journalism, right? right. So 
Um, how did you um, uh, uh, teach yourself uh, coding and geospatial? So basically during maybe the second lockdown that we had here in Berlin, I was very bored and needed mm -hmm. something to do. Uh, so yeah, I decided, hey, I want to start using geospatial data for some more interesting applications rather than just simply looking at it. And then I very quickly realized that I would probably need to learn to program to do that. So I did a course of Python on Code Academy. Didn't really understand what I was doing even after a month of that, but I just started setting myself projects of things that I wanted to build and then just slowly taught myself by doing. Yeah. Um, and maybe slowly is the wrong word. I feel like actually it, I, I did it pretty quickly. I mean, I suppose within six months, I was able to do like at least most basic geospatial tasks and start doing some data analysis and this kind of thing, start creating things like inter interactive maps, ways of displaying data in interesting ways and all this sort of thing. So yeah, I, I feel like that went pretty fast compared to learning, say, human languages, which can take a very long time. That's true. Um, but you speak a couple of them as well. But maybe could you provide us an, an overview of some of the projects you have done in the area of geospatial analytics in your in your free time, right? Exactly as an open source intelligence uh, contributor. Yeah. So uh, at the start of last year, or towards the end of the year before that, I think it was 2021. So this was when everyone was talking about the potential of Russia invading Ukraine, which, as we all know now, unfortunately, they went ahead with. There was still all of this question of will they will they do it? Is this going to happen? What's really going on? And so during this period, I worked on a program um, which I think I called like surveillance or something like that, which used synthetic aperture radar data to monitor a bunch of known uh, Russian military bases, uh, just for like doing like uh, for, for people who aren't sort of good with working with uh, satellite data, especially with SAR data, for them to be able to create like time series animations and stuff like that of what was going on at these places, uh, just as like a tool for sort of researchers who weren't as, uh, I suppose, capable there. And then from there, I started uh, doing other kinds of analysis where doing like change detection in SAR to try to find and identify uh, forward operating bases of the Russian uh, army closer to the border with Ukraine. And we actually found one or two there, which we then verified with like high resolution imagery that we acquired from archive, et cetera. Um, and then later on, I was also working, uh, I, I built more recently a, a ship tracking software, uh, also using Sentinel-1. I'm currently working on um, a series of, I suppose, algorithms to detect villages that have been burnt in Myanmar. This is a common tactic of the uh, military regime there where like, if, if there's any kind of like resistance in a village, they'll just burn the entire place down. There's hundreds of villages that have been burnt. And I'm trying to uh, create an automated system for detecting that uh, using uh, open data from Sentinel-2 in this case. Yeah, and maybe, maybe just a follow-up question to this. These all have been exactly um, active war zones or active yes. conflict zones where there are two parties fighting yes. each other. You also had a project, I think, as your master thesis, which looked more at the macroeconomic uh, situation in, in, in even a bigger part of the globe, right? That's correct, yeah. So for my master's thesis, I was looking at trying to uh, work out whether there is a link between droughts and the incidence of violent rioting within countries, specifically within sub-Saharan Africa. And so to measure uh, drought in this case, um, I used basically uh, NDVI, or Normalized Difference uh, Vegetation Index, which is basically a measure of vegetation health. And so I used this as a proxy for crop health 
and as a measure of agricultural drought. And so I basically calculated this for all of the crop lines in sub-Saharan Africa, and then used this uh, and then basically compared that to uh, similar co-located riots um, and so on and seeing if there was patterns there. And there was indeed a quite obvious statistically significant pattern there, um, which was a very interesting finding in my opinion. Yeah, and you can find out more on uh, Michael's Twitter account, uh, which we can add to the show notes, uh, where he, I think, has um, marked or pinned this post to the top of his LinkedIn, uh, uh, his Twitter feed. Very interesting. Yeah, super exciting. I mean, as a journalist, uh, also uh, being able to tell stories, but also to go deep in research, uh, geospatial now becomes becomes a tool set, right, for you, um, which is which is super exciting. Um, but I'm asking myself, uh, you know, you now have this tool set, you're working at a company utilizing this. Uh, others watch Netflix, uh, they do sports, they uh, um, uh, uh, cook a lot or something like this in their free time. Um, and you basically contribute to this um, uh, open source intelligence community. Uh, what is your motivation for that? Because you are very active. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, I suppose I just find it interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I mean, it's not that I don't do these other things um, that like, you know, to, to relax and so on and so forth. I've sunk way too much time into certain video games, for instance. Um, but this being said, um, yeah, no, I, I do find this very interesting. And I also, um, I, I suppose there's some level of idealism to it as well. I believe that, you know, finding the truth of what's going on in these places is, is something that is actually valuable and useful to people and that I'm doing good by uh, trying to find that truth. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a very, very good motivation. And I'm happy that you also find time for the other um, uh, <laughs> relaxing things. Um, so maybe for our listeners, um, like we already said multiple times, open source intelligence. Um, oh, can you tell us a bit uh, what that is? Yeah, so open source intelligence effectively is um, a, a kind of investigatory strategy where you are using data that's obtained by open sources. And by open source here, I mean data that is publicly available for anyone to access. There's a little bit of a gray area, I suppose, of what constitutes everyone access. Is it everyone can access if they pay, etc. But in general, that, that's the basic idea. And then as an open source uh, intelligence, I suppose, investigator or researcher, what you're doing is you're linking together these kind of different data points and forming a larger narrative. And this larger narrative that you form is very much like a scientific proof statement, I suppose, where you sort of show how one thing can only or, or uh, most likely leads to another thing, which leads to another thing, et cetera, and like this. And there's this idea of re reproducibility as well, where you basically demonstrate how you got from one step to another and how you established this overall, I suppose, truth of what happened. And it's anyone else, even somebody who... Uh, who's just like that, the average layperson, so to speak, reading it, can also reproduce this as well. There's no hidden sources. There's no um, uh, information that you just have to trust me about. It's, it's effectively trustless in this case. So it's not like I know an informant who isn't know, who isn't named, uh, who told me that, but it's this data source exactly proves that. It, could you give an example of where the open source intelligence community has um, yeah, unveiled something or has reported on something? Yeah, just maybe to walk us through and the listeners through how something like that could look like. Yeah. So I suppose one of the first major open source intelligence investigations that gained a lot of publicity was the work that Bellingcat did looking into uh, 
MH17, which was a, a jetliner that was uh, shot down over Ukraine. And they did uh, a very sort of long and very detailed investigation into how this happened, who was responsible, etc., bringing together data from really, really large number of sources. Um, and, and effectively, they came to the conclusion that it was uh, that the plane was shot down by a, a Buk missile uh, that was fired by uh, separatists uh, within the Donbass region. Um, and I think this at the time, this started to get open source intelligence into the sort of mainstream journalism in the sense of it was being reported on at the time, etc. Yeah. And and you've mentioned like exactly that in that case of the, the, the shot down airplane, um, they uh, they were able to figure out that it was a certain type of um, weapon which was used in this context. Most probably it's difficult to figure out on satellite imagery. We are here, we see a satellite company. So could you, but could you give us a brief overview? What are the different means of open source intelligence, right? So satellite data is one source, but are you able to figure out what kind of weapon has been used in this context? So what are other sources which are being used in open source research? Yeah, sure. So probably the most common uh, technique within open source intelligence is called geolocation. And this is effectively when you compare, say, images or video to satellite data in order to establish uh, exact location that it happened. So the vast majority, I'd say, of satellite data that is used in open source intelligence is not so much of something actually happening, but instead used to geolocate something in space, uh, in physical space, I mean. Uh, <laughs> should be clear here, given this is a space industry podcast. Um, yeah, so with that in mind, I suppose, that beyond the images that you find on social media or videos that you find on social media, there's also large open databases that are used uh, by open source researchers. There is, I, I mean, there's just a huge number of different data points you can use, like things like ship tracking data, airplane tracking data. Um, you can even use like radio frequency signals, this kind of thing. Basically, any anything that you can start to link together to draw a pattern and that is openly accessible can be used and is used. So phone pictures as well, any any type of like picture, georeference phone pictures yeah. and whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so you mentioned uh, multiple times the word truth, that you're um, looking for the truth. And I mean, we see globally right now um, uh, really, really a big trend. In the past, um, it was mainly that governments tried to uh, um, prevent people or you know, basically that people don't get access to information, right? That was the propaganda. Now they just uh, throw a lot of information, fake information, real information, so that you can't really differentiate anymore, right? And um, so this is a, a trend of the past years uh, that we see this, um, also with deep fakes, etc. Um, so um, can you tell us a bit, uh, like when um, was uh, like the the turning point for open source intelligence, or when was it started, and how what is the traction right now this um, this is getting? So yeah, I, I think. It started, or I suppose it started to become sort of more, maybe not mainstream, but certainly became more of a community and more of a, or a tech, uh, established series of techniques, probably during the period from 2013 or 12 through to 2016, I suppose, is when it, these things started to get, to coalesce together. And that was mainly in response to the, um, Uh, the Syrian civil war. There was a lot of people working on that at the time. Um, I mean, 
Elliot Higgins, who went on to found uh, Bellingcat, he started basically uh, on, with a, just a blog, basically blogging about uh, the war in Syria. And he just started using some of these techniques. And then um, other people were doing sort of similar things and this community started to coalesce. Um, I think obviously these days um, it's quite, well, relatively speaking, mainstream. Uh, there are, I mean, the New York Times has its own visual investiga investigations unit that does basically open source intelligence. Uh, BBC has a similar subunit doing similar things, etc. So it's relatively mainstream now. I think the point that it started to really hit there, I, that's a good question, I suppose. Oh, I would say definitely over the last like five years, it's, it's really like coming. I don't think there was a single thing that really did it. Uh, Obviously, like if you talk to a lot of people these days, they'd often say, well, it was the war in Ukraine, that, or I suppose the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022 that did it. But I, I think that there were lots of people already doing this beforehand. And I think basically the, the early work that Bellingcat did, um, especially, was instrumental in, mm -hmm. in getting this out into the mainstream and showing the power of it. And maybe just a question there. You've mentioned Bellingcat for, uh, a couple of times. Maybe could you just tell us what Bellingcat is? Is it like a company? Is it an organization? What is it? Uh, Bellingcat is, a, is, is, I suppose, a news platform, uh, open source intelligence platform and organization. I'm not sure whether they're registered as a company or a foundation. Um, I'd have to look into it. Um, but yeah, they were, uh, they were formed uh, by a, a British guy called Elliot Higgins. And they are probably, in my opinion at least, and I think in most people's opinion, the best, the most skilled group of people doing open source intelligence investigations. Um, I've written a few articles that have contributed uh, to some of their work too, um, but uh, there are also many other people um, who are doing a really great work um, and who have been involved in many investigations there. And there's a book about Bellingcat if you want to learn more about their founding story. Yeah, so uh, we are we are in a new new space um, podcast. Um, what would be uh, open source intelligence without satellite imagery? Yeah, I, I think so, certainly satellite imagery is like, I suppose the keystone to much of what they do of what we do. Uh, definitely for geolocation, it's incredibly important. Mm. Uh, having uh, like just the imagery available, even on uh, Google Maps, for instance, is really critical in being able to yeah um, link like an image or a video to an explicit place. Yeah. And, uh, and this is also something which changed in the past years, right? Because you mentioned 2013, 2014, Copernicus was started. Like these public programs, do they also, uh, like how, how do they contribute uh, to, to open source research? Yeah, certainly like the ESA's uh, public programs have been really useful and quite transformative in that respect. There are now a huge number of people interacting with satellite data that wouldn't have been in the past. And especially some of the platforms that are actually available now to work with that data or at least view that data, like EO Browser from Sentinel Hub, etc. Mm. Uh, these have been really useful for people. And I think just the, the penetration of working with satellite data into this community has expanded greatly because of the work of the ESA, especially yeah. in open sourcing this data. But you uh, um, still don't have access to commercial data, um, like, or, or do people have uh, free access uh, like to, to this data based on some uh, funding programs or something like this? So. Uh, people are using commercial data, um, especially archive high-resolution imagery. Uh, a lot of that, they're self-funding. 
um, mm. or their funding through, you know, Patreon or something like this. They certainly don't have free access to it, um, but they are using this data and more so, I suppose, as time goes on. Um, but because it's still, because it's something that you have to pay for still, it is something that it's, it's not extensively used, let's say. Yeah, maybe drilling on that topic, how do you think that, or what could you imagine to be a good setting where commercial satellite players support truth-seeking? Do you think that there's a way how, say, the planets, the satellite logics, the black sky uh, of this world, or even Maxa and Airbus, who I think sell a lot of money, uh, a lot of images to intelligence players, but let's say the, the intelligence agencies, could... or support the open source intelligence community or do you think they would like to do so so as far as i understand it the vast majority of the profits and income of these companies come from tasking and from people buying the data within say the first month or so after it has been uh, the, the the imagery has been taken uh, I, i think that the best way that they could support this would be by open sourcing their archives after a certain time frame has passed Because so much of what your investigation, sorry, so much of what you are investigating is stuff that's happened in the past, and having access to very high resolution data on that would be really, really useful, and would uh, the number of use cases for this would probably explode. And I think the actual financial loss that the companies would suffer by doing that is relatively small, probably. And open sourcing the archives would obviously also solve a problem for companies like Lifeo because you need training data to train machine learning algorithms on it. And yeah. exactly, it would solve a lot of problems also in Daniel and my perspective, if more satellite operators would exactly drive that initiative to open source, uh, to open their archives for many reasons, right? Yeah. Visibility, access, enabling new applications, which are currently not possible because they are just being choked by exactly the issue that you have to pay for archive data. It's uh, one of the most underestimated um, uh, approaches uh, satellite operators could could do, like yeah. opening up archives uh, to developers, uh, not, not only in the open source, Uh, intelligence community and I think they are underestimating uh, you know uh, like the, the, the short term uh, revenue they don't get versus the long term growth like they're totally underestimating this long term enablement and, and growth of commercial applications uh, but that's um, th that's another story yeah. um, <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by LifeU LifeU's mission is to unlock the full potential of Earth observation data for humanity and life on Earth through AI We are the global market leader in infrastructure monitoring and are bringing the power of satellite data analytics to other industries globally. Talk to us to find out how satellite data can benefit you and your company via podcast at live-eo.com. So uh, did I remember correctly that after some of your tweets, um, you even got a call from, from someone from the military? Was it? What, yeah. Was it? Uh, yeah, I, I, at one stage, I yeah, I got a call from someone from NATO, actually, with respect to something that I'd written. Um, they were just interested in how I'd done it, etc. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, certainly, yeah, like this, this some of this information does seem to be useful to people within this within the intelligence community. Mm. That surprises me to some degree because obviously they have access to much better platforms than as open source researchers we do, um, or indeed the best they have access to stuff that's better than like the best that you can get on the commercial market. But this being said, of course, there's always trade-offs when it comes to resolution, et cetera. Your field of view is very small. Yeah. So things that can analyze large amounts of medium or not so high resolution data 
uh, can also be useful. Yeah. So, so this was not in the context of live view. This was in your was spare in time, right? Can you explain a bit what he what he did there? Oh, so th this was in uh, in response to a uh, ship tracking algorithm that I wrote mm -hmm. for Sentinel One, and they were just interested in knowing how I how I was doing that, um, and um, more or less whether they were also interested in me looking at uh, a specific exercise they were doing as well. But I, I'm surprised actually that they decided to call me about that, given that I had actually open sourced the entire code to it, and they could just download it and read it for themselves. Maybe, maybe they weren't so familiar with what open source even means. And, uh, but, but I also think that the, yeah. the coding part, uh, depending on, on uh, who was who there, like yeah. they, they see this um, publication and then um, they want to know more about this. So this was based on Sentinel-1? Sentinel-1. Sentinel-1. So this was also really surprising for me that there is uh, um, a person doing this in the spare time and then NATO calls. So that's... Uh, uh, it's, but um, what, what we can learn from this is that the industry technology is changing so fast, right, that uh, there is so much untapped uh, water, basically, right, which we can we, which we can grab through these different approaches, and of course, Sentinel One was not there um, a long time, uh, yeah. right? So uh, that's that's super cool. Um, so you get this call from <clears throat> from NATO, and they ask you what what you're doing. You are pub publi uh, you're publishing a lot of things. Is there a risk for people in open source intelligence that basically? Um, uh, I don't know. You, you need to fear some attacks if you publish something, or what, were there some incidents in the past? Uh, I suppose of, of the, the researchers that I know, uh, there haven't been specific like incidents where they've been directly attacked. Certainly, some of them are under threat. Um, and there is some risk, especially um, if you are uncovering something which people obviously don't want uncovered. Um, you can bring a lot of unwarranted attention to yourself, or not unwarranted, let's say, but um, undesired. And that some of that attention can be negative and some of that attention can be from people with the capacity to carry out some kind of or pose some kind of threat to you. Uh, from my personal perspective, I mean, I've occasionally got some death threats and stuff like that, but nothing that I believe was actionable or anything. So I personally don't feel threatened. Uh, there are countries I certainly wouldn't visit anymore because of work that I've done about those countries or about their governments specifically. Uh, but in general, at least living in Germany, I don't specifically feel under great threat for my work. Okay, yeah. So you have a lot of mental stability, you know, <laughs> if, uh, some, yeah. some people write you these messages and, yeah. you know, you, 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 you still, you, you feel safe, safe here, right? And uh, yeah, maybe it's also just for some psychological pressure, right, that you, yeah. that you stop this, but it won't stop you. Yeah, I mean, like the way I see it is that, like, I mean, if if you're writing an article about something that's a very contentious topic and you're not getting death threats from both sides, um, <laughs> you're probably writing an unbalanced article. Okay, well, <laughs> that's a good indication. That's an interesting take. Well, we talked about the dangers to the contributors. What do you think is the danger of, for example, AI, um, generative AI, and deep fakes on um, exactly the work? Um, the open source intelligence community is doing. Do you think there's any danger? Um, well, I mean, actually, like, I, I think it is, it's interesting you brought this up because I think in many ways the techniques that are used within open source intelligence to verify imagery, uh, sorry, what, sorry, to verify images or videos can also be used to verify whether something is generated by an AI or not. Because say, if you've got an image of a person and in the background there are some buildings, maybe there's some shops, etc. And this is a completely uh, AI-generated image. 
those shops are not going to be real places. The buildings are not going to be real. They're not going to exist in the real world. So geolocating it will be impossible. Mm -hmm. And I mean, right now, AI can't do things like uh, text very well. Yeah. Um, so you'll probably you can zoom in on the video on, on the image and see that you know the shop names are just absolute garbage letters or letters that don't exist etc but thinking a few years ahead if they solve these problems the the fact that these places don't exist in the real world means that you can use the real world as a way to prove that they're from ai mm. because if so long as you can't like basically if you can't put it somewhere in the real world then it's probably fake that's a super exciting topic because we have seen, um, like, also now in, in the in the in the war in in the, in the Ukraine that um, some uh, campaigns were happening where there were very old images from completely different parts of the world, and they said, "Yeah, this is right now happening," um, but people could basically say, "Hey, this is not even the location they are writing about," right? So that's exactly. that, that's a big thing. And then also, um, uh, basically, multiple sensors. But right? you can also fake satellite data, right? Of so, course. And uh, this is uh, we, we have seen uh, some uh, some exciting things in the past. I don't know practical applications except basically propaganda and faking mm -hmm. things, right? So yeah, I, I think that like faking satellite data is kind of pointless because it's so easy to work out that it's fake. Mm -hmm. um, because like a satellite image only really has value if you can say where it is, and yeah. once you said where it is, then you can say wait that, that this place that is not like this doesn't exist where you say it is, so therefore it's fake. It, it's just, I, I, it kind of defeats the purpose. Like, mm. unless you're you're purely just like including it as a screenshot in a news article, that's like some really low effort propaganda. But if you're trying to trick larger numbers of people or trick news organizations, mm. etc., it, it's just kind of pointless and it won't work. And most likely it's more about the nuances, what you see in that image, right? Taking a complete different area, a complete different street or whatever is most probably doesn't doesn't really serve any purpose but then saying okay this happened at this, po this point in time only being captured by this one satellite which we only have control over um that might be might be a different thing but this is why we need more satellite capture and more <laughs> satellites in orbit so that we can make sure that there's always um also open sources which can uh replicate any observation exactly and yeah. so much of what we do within open source intelligence is cross-checking things and linking things together and if all of a sudden say a tank appears in the middle of a city and yeah. it's not caught on any security cameras it's only caught on this one satellite yeah. image then maybe that raises suspicion that that thing has been inserted into that image through yeah. other means yeah. yeah so uh yeah we now talked about ai for deep fakes um but we know also that, that you're using, uh, I mean, general analytics methods also beside AI, but you're also using AI um, and, and others in open open source intelligence using AI, which I found pretty exciting, right? That people in their spare time, they just build some, uh, you know, AI algorithms. For some, it still sounds like magic, but, you know, in, in the tech industry, we now see that it's uh, super accessible, like since since five years or something like this, right? Getting traction. So uh, what is the role um, of, of AI in analyzing uh, um, patterns um, or, or yeah, in areas in uh, OSINT? Yeah, so as it currently stands, I think uh, AI or deep learning, this kind of thing, is useful for basically narrowing the search space down to like, so imagine, I don't know, if you're trying to find a needle in a haystack, hypothetically speaking, you don't want to search manually the entire haystack. You want to sort of get maybe narrow down to a hundred different pieces of hay that sort of look like needles. And then you can <laughs> manually check that last hundred. 
Yeah. And so I think that first narrowing the search space down can be done quite well by AI. However, I don't think that last part should be. And I think that doing that kind of goes against the ethos of open source intelligence because mm. you're sort of, most deep learning models are not interpretable. They're not explainable. So to actually say, to sort of do this sort of scientific proof is very difficult uh, within this context. So I think it's some, and also it's not reproducible. Uh, which is also, I think, against much of the ethos of open source intelligence. So, yeah, I, I think it's useful as a tool to help researchers in terms of actually finding like patterns just using deep learning. I'm not sure that that is the best uh, way to go about it. Yeah. And also very often in intelligence, um, uh, it's it, like very specific problems with a lot of context. Yeah. Um, I've seen presentation of companies uh, at conferences which say, yeah, yeah, and we identify here this and that. There was a ship, right, uh, a container ship, and they say, yeah, and here this is in that direction and so on. But uh, you know, coming uh, like uh, uh, having founded a satellite analytics company, it's it's um, it, it will take very long until you can create all these small connections on just one image, right? So it's re really the aerial interpreter, which is which is a, a dominating thing here. And another example was the the ma massacre in Butcher, right, where uh, we have seen in the news um, satellite imagery from Maxa, mm -hmm. where you could really see where 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 the bodies were where, yeah. were lying, right? And um, this is, uh, I mean, you don't use an AI algorithm to do. You don't that, have right? training data, right? Because there are exactly. so specific things that you couldn't Su pick them up. Exactly, yeah. such a such a neat neat thing. Um, so uh, so so still a lot is also um, uh, um, solved by really looking at images, right? That's right. And uh, and also some of the things, even looking at things as a human can get very difficult to tell the different swings. Like mm -hmm. I was looking at some imagery from um, the Tigray region of Ethiopia and uh, where, where there had been a lot of fighting and there were what looked like craters everywhere. And I was like, wow, there's a huge amount of like artillery that's being used here. The place looks like the surface of the moon, etc. And I, I showed this to other people within uh, the open source intelligence community and they were like, ah, this is not actually craters at all that you're looking at. These are just uh, bales of hay that wow. have been put in like circles yeah. and that look like craters because yeah. like they have the exact same sort of geometry and size, let's say, when you're looking from above. Mm. And in the same way, an AI algorithm would not be able to tell the difference between these. And if you tried to train something to find craters, it would all of a sudden find thousands and thousands and thousands of craters in the list. And unless you visually inspected this and not just visually inspected it, but visually inspected with someone who really knew the region, knew what they were looking at, then you would make a really big mistake. Yeah. Yeah. So we will still in the future see uh, aerial interpreters um, because of all these specific things, right? So AI won't replace them, um, but maybe support them, basically. Yeah. Right? As you exactly. Mentioned. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's a powerful tool, but it's not a tool that will replace the human yeah. entirely. Yeah. Super cool. But um, now coming to towards the end of this this podcast, which I found very, very interesting. Now, again, you're a relatively new joiner to the geospatial industry and you come from a very special angle, as we've just discussed. What do you think is the, is the most surprising thing about the geospatial industry? Uh, because I think it's there's some weird things happening or like they're in a sense like the some things in the geospatial industry are more difficult than they would need to be or they are. Uh, being done in a certain way where someone who's not coming from the industry, like Danny and myself, are asking ourselves, why are people who've been working with geospatial data for the last 30 years are doing it that way? Have you encountered any of such things? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, the one that everyone always brings up, of course, is the way that satellite data is priced, that it's completely non-transparent. Yeah. And that, like, is there another industry in the world that really, like, has such, like, poor transparency in how much its products actually cost? I, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I suppose beyond that, what really surprised me the most getting into the geospatial industry is that beyond the kind of, uh, the, the uses that you initially think for satellite data, like, uh, are a lot of like visual identification things, counting objects in a scene, looking at actual change within a scene. But that is really only the tip of the iceberg. And there's so much more that can be done with multispectral, hyperspectral data. And that just looking at an image often is really like, you're, you're not getting the most out of it. You really need to like analyze what's actually behind that image, the data behind it, the extra bands that are there, etc. And this, I, I suppose, yeah, what surprised me the most was just that there is what people think of as geospatial anal- analysis is very different or uh, only like a very small portion of what is actually done. And that so much more can be done that people aren't really thinking about, except in very specific use cases. Yeah. Okay, can you give some examples? Yeah, so uh, I, I mean, a good example might be like hypothetically that I want to, I don't know, analyze the output of a factory, for instance. And yeah, like, I mean, when I got into geospatial, uh, I was thinking like, yeah, okay, obvious ways to do it would be, you know, counting the number of cars in the car park at the factory, like to sort of get a proxy for the number of people working there or something like that um, and stuff like that. But these days, I suppose I would be more interested in, you know, is there ways to measure the amount of heat that the building puts off and which areas are being used mm-hmm. uh, sort of thing. So doing something like thermal infrared or perhaps analyzing the kind of smoke that's coming out of it and how often that is out of the smokestacks to work out, you know, perhaps what kinds of things are being produced or what kind of chemical reactions are going on, mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And I mean, some of this stuff is a little bit beyond the means of current satellites, but moving forward into the future, when you have more hyperspectral stuff, some of this more uh, detailed chemical analysis that could be done and things like this could yield some very interesting kinds of information. Yeah, it's basically the the things you don't see with a human eye directly. Exactly. Exactly. And also uh, like these indirect indications of something which are way more complex. You need to think around multiple edges to, to figure these out. And I think there is so much uh, value and so much information uh, hidden uh, currently, which we will be able to grasp with all these new sensors, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, that, that's super exciting. Um, but one thing I was uh, I was ask, asking myself um, uh, when you, when you mentioned um, okay, big news uh, um, organizations now also um, have uh, um, OSINT, um, and you said it's be- become uh, more like mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, like, is there already an effect on the people who are let's say they, they would have fallen into the, the trap of propaganda that they see these things and get get convinced like do you, do you really see this already or is this more more thing for the future i i think oh, but sorry you mean by seeing like the kind of uh, data that's been produced by yes, television exactly, yeah. okay yeah i mean I, I hope that there are people who are being convinced by this um in reality i'm not sure i i, I think that like because you only really hear from people on the fringes who are like extreme belief or extreme non-belief, um, then you don't have a really good read on how many people it's convincing. But I think in general, creating this ethos that you can go through and methodically, just as a normal person, not as a journalist with yeah, all these like yeah. uh, sort of private sources, etc., but just as a normal person, that you yourself can follow a methodology to try to establish like more of the truth. I think that's a really powerful thing. And I think that it's something that 
that if we create, if we, if we popularize this idea of, yeah, you can find things out, but don't just go off what someone's telling you. Mm, find it out yeah, for yourself, but yeah. use the proper methodology for doing that. I think that would improve things. And, and I think that has the chance of really changing people's yeah. minds. And uh, what, what I also um, have heard now multiple times is that just seeing satellite imagery in a news article uh, is already convincing more and more people that this is somehow the truth, right? Because it's still somehow this institution, uh, you know, these governmental companies which produce these satellite imagery. Mm -hmm. So uh, it typically creates more trust. There is a satellite image and we can see it. Um, and um, I mean, also with Live View, we have our um, weekly story in Economy from Above. We now have more than 200 stories, uh, which we which we publish uh, with with uh, um, uh, yeah one of the or maybe the leading German um, uh, economy magazine, right? And there were also so many diverse uh, diverse things we could prove with satellite imagery, right? So, and I'm happy basically that we see this more and more often. Now, I think it it got a real big push uh, now in the war um, in, in the Ukraine, like. Yeah, certainly. Like, I mean, the imagery provided by, say, Max are uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of some of these like uh, military bases in Russia that were sort of building up troops, etc. Yeah, this, this was definitely, I suppose, a turning point for the public mm. uh, in general to have this uh, greater exposure to satellite data mm. and what it was capable of seeing in the, the, the highest possible commercial resolution. Interesting. Uh, I'm just reflecting on it, and I mainly had seen imagery from Maxa. And exactly, in fact, like there was very few imagery from Airbus, or very relatively few images from Planet or any of the other places. It was always Maxa. And I, I, I can tell you why. Okay, please. Yeah. Yeah. Um, policy. Okay. They, uh, we we uh, had a story um, uh, which was which was somehow. Yeah, it, it was in the Ukraine. It was something about the economy, but but still, it was blocked basically by operators. I don't want to call names, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it, it, they said um, they don't want uh, to publish imagery about the war, so they exclusively sell it to intelligence agencies. Whereas Maxar and Planet, Planet uh, also published some images, but some other operators, which I don't name, um, don't yeah. do that as a policy, oh. which I somehow don't understand. But I'm not running the organization, so. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that could be a step to support open source intelligence to exactly open up this imagery for second verification and, and use um, in, in this kind of context. But yeah, um, thank you very much, Michael. I think this was a very interesting uh, podcast episode. I've learned a lot and I think it's a, it's a super interesting and super relevant and important topic um, to uh, uncover the truth through means of open source intelligence. Um, so thank you very much. Um, Exactly. Um, we have uh, one question. Now we have two more questions. One would be, who should we interview next here on the New Space Vision podcast? So, I mean, my recommendation would be um, uh, another geospatial developer called uh, Tiolshan Wu, who created the GEE map um, Python plugin or Python package, I should say, for working with uh, Google Earth Engine data. He was really instrumental in creating some of these like really great tools for working with geospatial data and also I suppose in some ways by proxy, he was my primary teacher for learning how to work with <laughs> um, with geospatial data. I used a lot of his videos to learn these things. So, But he produces a really huge amount of really great work in this field, and I'd recommend uh, chatting with him. Okay, so uh, we try to get him on, on one of our next podcasts. And now um, I bet there are um, a lot of listeners who are now super excited to look into open source intelligence. So what do you, would you recommend uh, them to start with? Any websites or readings uh, you would recommend which we could put into, into the text? So um, beyond, say, reading what's been published on sites like Bellingcat or the New York Times Visual Investigations Unit, 
Uh, there's also a really good uh, Discord for uh, Discord group called um, Project Owl, which has like fifteen thousand members or something more than this, um, which is just a huge number of people working on different open source intelligence projects across a huge range of areas. Uh, but it's also really easy and accessible as like a beginner. People are really open to having questions asked. There's no uh, knowledge that's implicitly uh, sort of required to sort of be let in and so on. And it's more just that you, um, you, 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 you get access to more and more things based on how much you're contributing, etc. So it's also a great place and it has many resources. And of course, everyone should follow you on Twitter, right? Of course, yes. Of course. <laughs> Cool. Very, very cool. Thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in. Michael, thanks uh, a lot for spending these couple of minutes with us and sharing your wisdom with exactly. the crowds. Yeah. Um, and exactly, thanks to the listeners. Um, make sure that you follow New Space Vision on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and wherever you can find us. Make sure to follow Asset Michael uh, on Twitter as MJ. Um, underscore Krushek. Krushek. Right, it's a, it sounds like a German word, so I should be able to pronounce it correctly. Um, and make sure to tune in next time when we have another cool guest here on the podcast. See you next time. All right, uh, lift off and the clock is started. Lift off. We have a lift off.